So we are in the Gospel of Matthew, working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We just briefly touched on chapter 9 last Sunday, so we'll just get back to verse 1. We read, so Jesus got into a boat. He's just been in Gadara. He's just liberated two demon-possessed men. Just went to minister to the town. They, for various reasons, asked him to leave. He acquiesced to their request, so he gets into the boat. He's on the Sea of Galilee. He crosses over, and he basically returns to Capernaum. He, we're told by Matthew that he came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, now we have to kind of pause right there for a moment. You know, as we work our way through this gospel, one of the challenges I face is how much of the other gospel narrations do I include in a study of Matthew? Do we just allow the text to be itself, or do we tap into other accounts to add some color and some definition to what we're studying? And this is one of those stories that that I feel inclined to, because Matthew, he leaves out so much uh, important information that's actually quite hilarious. Mark, Luke, you'll find other accounts of this story. Matthew, it's very dry. You know, (laughs) he says in verse 2, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, there's a lot in that. We won't read the other accounts. But but let's start with the, the location. In the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're told that Jesus was in the house. And, and within the context of Mark's Gospel, the was a definitive article. It was the house, meaning it's a house that he's already mentioned, already referred to. It, it's an important house, a, a house of, of, of distinction there in Capernaum. And in Mark's Gospel, as with Matthew, there's really only one house that we've had mention of the house of Simon Peter. So when Mark says the house within its context, we understand that Jesus is in the home of Simon Peter, which is not abnormal. We've already seen that Jesus frequented there. Uh, In fact, he he went and he healed Peter's mother-in-law of of a severe fever. Uh, Jesus was a a social butterfly. Whether he had his own place in Capernaum or not, we're not sure. Uh, But it's likely that he spent quite a bit of time there in the home of Simon. Peter. So we know that this scene occurs in the home of Peter. Matthew, again, just tells us that they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And he leaves out some important stuff. You see, Jesus was in the home of Peter doing something he loved to do. He was teaching God's word. In fact, Jesus had had been outside of Capernaum for some time. Now, again, when you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, just in the way that the narration unfolds, you know, it seems very, very quick, very abrupt. You know, Jesus commands the disciples to get in a boat. They get into a boat. They go over to the Gadarenes. He spends a the night there. They say, you need to leave. He gets back in the boat. He ends up in Capernaum. All of this occurring within a night or two. And yet, within the context, if you were to harmonize the Gospels, uh, why it seems as though this was kind of you know, a quick escape from Capernaum, it's likely two, roughly maybe even three months have transpired. Matthew is not intending to present for us a complete chronology 
of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, truth be told, Mark, Luke probably do a better job of that. Matthew, and again, going back to our introduction, is, is writing very much thematically. There is a chronology, but he's writing with a theme in mind. He's presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. And, and thus, each section of the Gospel of Matthew kind of f follows different thematic intentions or purposes. Beginning in chapter 8, following the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew has kind of segued into just illustrating the power of Jesus. Again, he's taught this incredible sermon. Now Matthew's substantiating the authority of his word by showing his practical authority in ministering to people's life. Jesus was more than just a preacher. He loved people. He ministered to people. He liberated people. And we've seen many examples of this from the leper to Simon's mother who had the fever to these demon-possessed men to staying up all night in Capernaum healing the sick multitudes. Matthew writing with the purpose of Jesus being the king. So it seems as though this transition may have occurred quickly, but it really didn't. In fact, following the leper, if you recall, Jesus gave a unique instruction to the leper. He told the leper to go to present himself to the priest as a testimony to them. We talked about that, unpacked it. He also instructed the leper not to tell anyone what he had done. Very unique instruction. And we're told in the Gospel of Mark that the leper didn't obey. <laughs> and you can sympathize a little being healed of your leprosy. He told everyone he knew. In fact, it was a consequence of that that the multitudes started to swell so, so massively around Jesus that it was hard for him to operate, thus requiring him to get in a boat and go to a different region. Once things had calmed down, he comes back. And then he gets back to doing what he was doing, what he loved to do. Comes to Simon Peter's home. Word spreads that Jesus is back. Interesting that he's teaching at home. It was his custom to teach mainly in the synagogues, but Jesus was not limited to locale. He taught wherever there were people willing to listen, whether it was a hillside or a mountaintop or the home of Peter. So word spreads, Jesus is back. And again, in the other gospel narratives, we're told that the house was so filled to capacity that people, there was natural overflow. I mean, they fit everyone into the living room they could. People were in the kitchen. People were out in the foyer. People were in the hallway. People were packed into this house so that no one else could fit. Just to hear the words that Jesus was sharing. Oh, to hear Jesus teach, right? The Word. Expounding upon the Word. The living Word speaking of the written Word. Oh, to be a fly on the wall to hear Jesus. Think about it. For eternity, we'll get to hear Jesus. I'll be out of a job, but that's okay. I'll be sitting where you are, excited to hear Jesus expound on the word. Overflow. We're even told that in addition to filling the house to its capacity, people were gathered outside, around the windows, around the doors. People not even being able to see Jesus wanted to be within earshot. And we're told that they brought to Jesus a paralytic, a man that was paralyzed. Four friends, in fact, bring this man to Jesus, and they encounter a particular problem upon their arrival. How in the world are we going to get our friend 
to Jesus. The place is packed. There's no room in the house. We can't get into the house. I love that four friends, we don't know much of them at all. We don't know much of the paralytic either. Except for these four fellas, they obviously love this paralyzed man. They care for him. So much so that they hear that Jesus is in town, that Jesus is back. And they're like, we need to get our buddy to Jesus. No doubt they had heard the ministry of Jesus. They had heard of his miraculous power. Jesus had spent the whole night in Capernaum just a few months before healing people. Maybe they were unable to convince their, their paralytic friend to let them bring him to, the, to this, this new rabbi. Maybe they missed the moment the window had closed, but they're not to be deterred this time around. They pick him up, four men, each corner of the bed, and they take him to Jesus, and they encounter this problem. How are we going to get him in front of the master? Now, in that day, as it is today in the Middle East, the homes were built out of a, of a, a thatch covered in mud. The substance became like a, a concrete, brickish material. So much so that the rooftops of these homes were not built like ours. In fact, the rooftops often doubled as patio space. A good place to go in, in the cool of the evening for refreshment. Just a, an extension uh, of the house, very similar to our patios today. And so these guys, they arrive at the home. The place is packed. They're carrying their friend. They're like, we need to get our friend to Jesus. It's his only hope. Now, most of us would have gotten to that juncture and been like, oh, well, maybe another day. Would have turned and gone home. But not these four guys. These four guys, to their credit, have some ingenuity and some guts. Because they look at the home. They're like, well, we got to get him there. I mean, we carried him this far. He can't walk home. We don't want to carry him home. There's got to be a better solution to this. And so we're told that they, they hoist him up onto the roof. And they're like, well, we can't go in the doors. We can't go around the corners. We're going to create a, a skylight. We're going to lower our friend through the roof right there in front of Jesus. And so they get up on top, and they start to dig their way through the roof. Now, for a moment, pause. And just try to place yourself in the home, right? Now, you're excited. You, you, I mean, you got a front row seat. You're there in the house. Maybe you're a friend of Peter or Peter's wife. You got yourself in. And you're sitting there. I mean, you're, you're held captive by every word of Jesus. And then out of nowhere, you hear a thump. And you're like, that is odd. Where is that coming from? Thump. There it is again. Thump. Now, I mean, it's like how long does it take you to realize that something is happening above you? Probably the, the dust particles that are now falling down on your head. It's like, man, he has, he has a rodent issue. And then at some point, I imagine, again, we're not told specifically, that Jesus, he knows what's going on. You know, he continues teaching unabated. I mean, nothing's a distraction to Jesus. You know, he ignores what's happening. And as a result of him ignoring what's happening, you feel the compulsion to try to ignore what's happening as well. While what's happening is very obvious, someone is trying to dig through the roof. 
out of nowhere, a speck of light comes beaming down. They have breached. And that little hole continues to expand. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, again, you don't know who's on the roof. You don't know their intention. You don't know why they're digging a hole. And then you see ropes come down in the middle of the living room. At this point, people are starting to move back. And these four men, again, Matthew, all he says is they brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. Doesn't tell us to do that. They dig a hole in Peter's roof. Imagine Peter for a moment. You know, this is early in the ministry. You know, he's already had to convince his wife that this was the right move. You know, letting go of the family fishing business to follow this rabbi around. You, Peter, following a, a rabbi? Are you sure? Honey, I'm telling you, this is the right move. Okay. But then what? At, like at some point in time, there they are. We've invited Jesus over. We're chilling. We're relaxing. Someone's probably outside mowing. Doing their thing, you know. You're avoiding the distractions, right? The roof starts to open up. I wonder what the glance that Peter's wife gave him, you know. Now, the, the, the place is packed. You can't get in, meaning you, you can't get out. Peter's sweating bullets. I can't believe they're digging a hole in my roof. Who's going to fix that? Will insurance cover it? I'm already worried about the fire marshal. We're way beyond capacity. The glare of his wife. I knew this was a problem. Now, at some point, ropes come down into the home. They're going to lower this man down. I, I, I imagine Jesus the whole time is just, he's kind of giddy with excitement. I mean, this is, this is funny to Jesus. And these guys, they attach ropes to the four corners of of the bed, and they go to lower him down. Now, again, the paralytic. Imagine you're that guy. And you're like, you're going to do what, guys? <laughs> like, you told me you were going to bring me to Jesus, and I, I was okay with that. I mean, what do I have to lose? And then we get there, and I'm like, guys, it's, it's you know, we don't want to be a bother. You know, we should go home. And they're like, we're not going home. We're going to lower you through the roof. Guys, seriously, this is a bad idea. What are you going to do? You're paralyzed. You can't stop us. You have to go where we carry you. And then they're up there. They dig the hole. And they start attaching the ropes. And he's like, you're going to lower me through the hole? What if I fall? I, well, you're already paralyzed. They lower him down right there in front of Jesus. All eyes are on the master. The room is filled with some anticipation. I mean, this is quite a scene, isn't it? And we're told, notice, that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, I, again, you have to pause right there. Whose faith did he see? The paralytic? No, no, he saw the, the faith of the friends. These four men 
He saw their faith. After lowering him, you can tell that they probably hit their bellies. They're looking down the hole, you know, all four of them. Feeling a bit proud of what they'd done. Thinking, we'll have to make a quick escape. But he sees their faith. That they had brought this man to Jesus. That they had brought him. And then we're told that Jesus says to the paralytic. So he sees their faith. He looks up and sees them. And then he turns to this man that's lying in front of him. And he says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The first word out of Jesus' mouth, son. There's a, a, a personal nature to it in the original language. And in fact, there's a very tenderness in the way that the, the word in its, its origins comes across. It's my son. Son. It's not in the southern kind of way, the son. It's, it's tender. It's loving. There's a connection that Jesus makes, right? My son. And then he says, be of good cheer. And you would only tell someone to cheer up when, when they're not exactly happy about the situation. There, there's something going on within the heart of this, this man. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, at that moment, Jesus is speaking to this man. And he's addressing some, something unspoken, something deep, something internal, something going on in this man's life. Maybe his friends were aware of it. Maybe they weren't. Some have tried to make the argument that his paralysis uh, may have been a consequence, may have been the result of, of poor moral living of maybe a, a sexually transmitted disease, that he had done something to incur or, or to, to bring about this condition, that it had been his poor choices, poor decision. They bring him to Jesus. Either way, however you want to read it, whether it's something that everyone knew about, something just internal to the man, regardless, Jesus looks at this man laying there in front of him, paralyzed, and Jesus, he identifies the most pressing need in his life, which ironically wasn't his paralysis. The man's, the man's need, what Jesus wanted to address, what mattered most wasn't his physical condition. It wasn't his physical ailment. It wasn't this sickness. It wasn't the results of the sickness. His pressing need was salvation. It was his sin. Jesus says, son, he looks him in the eye with a tenderness. I know you can't hide it from me. Which is probably why he has to follow it up with be of good cheer. It's okay. It's okay. Your sins are forgiven. Now, now we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, just this idea of the forgiveness of the man's sins. But we're told at once, verse 3, some of the scribes, which again were the, the, the lawyers, the experts of the law, 
in some of the other accounts, we're also told that the Pharisees were present, as well as the Sadducees, these two other political factions. So at once, some of the scribes, they said within themselves, so this was not an audible thing, it was something inside of them, witnessing the, s- the scene. They said, this man, speaking of Jesus, blasphemes. Only God can forgive sins, they reason. And they're not quite at the point where they're going to accept the divinity, the Godship of this man, Jesus. You can't forgive, only God can forgive sins. And according to the law, there was an entire mechanism by which sins were to be forgiven. I mean, we're not at the temple. Sacrifices aren't being made. We're here in Capernaum. We're miles away from the center of religion. Who are you to forgive sins? How can you forgive sins? What right do you have to forgive the man's sins? You're not God. They reason within themselves. Their skepticism. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, I, 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 should, I should point out that you could highlight or circle Jesus knowing their thoughts. Um, Because that is a scary verse. Because if he knows their thoughts, he knows yours. If there is no thought that that you think, he is unaware of. But he knows their thoughts. He perceives what's happening. And so he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. Now, Jesus goes right right for the jugular, and he's honest about the predicament. You guys are sitting there, and you're reasoning that this is blasphemy. But beyond that, there's a bit of skepticism in the sense of like, I'm taking the easy way out here. And let's be fair, Jesus has been put into a a predicament. I mean, if there was ever a moment where Jesus was put on the spot and there was no way to escape it, this is it. He's in a packed room. He can't leave. He can't get out. The roof opens up. A paralytic is dropped right in front of him. Everyone is there. Everyone is watching. Everyone's present. Even the skeptics are there on the front row. What is he going to do? And the most pressing need to everyone present is the fact that the man's paralyzed. He's a paralytic. The guys up above, they brought their friend to Jesus for what reason? For his legs to be healed. These guys have no intention of pulling the guy back up. I mean, we lowered him. Jesus, you got to deal with it now. Everyone's watching. And so Jesus, he looks at the man, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people in the room are thinking, nice one, Jesus. I mean, you're kind of copping out. Now, again, Jesus is addressing the most pressing need in this man's life. He doesn't care about the opinions of others. The most pressing need for this man was his sin and the guilt, the condemnation, how it was ruining him and was damning him for eternity. Jesus was addressing the pressing need. But to everyone there, they're sitting there thinking, okay, nice one. I mean, it was a good trick. Your sins are forgiven. Because no one can actually validate whether you actually forgave their sin. I mean, we won't really know until the judgment and eternity. 
In fact, Jesus, it would be a lot harder for you to say, rise up and walk, because we're going to know one way or the other if that actually happened. The sin thing, nice parlor trick. Rise up and walk, well, that we're all here for. And so Jesus acknowledges that. He says, he says which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and, arise and walk? It is easier to say your sins are forgiven. That is the easier thing to say because no one can prove whether you're right or wrong. Arise and walk has an immediate result one way or the other, doesn't it? But then Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, again, speaking of himself, using this, this phrase introduced in Daniel 7, so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So, he says, so that you know this is not a trick and that I actually forgave the man's sin. You want some evidence? You want some validity? Validation. So he turns to the paralytic, again, to have been there. Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. I mean, that crowded room split like the Red Sea. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. What a moment. So that you know I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to practically demonstrate that power, the power of my word. I can say your sins are forgiven because I can say, arise, take up your bed and walk, and boom, the man gets up. I've taught through this passage several times throughout the years. It's a great passage of Scripture. This time around, it hits me in a totally different way. Because it's easy to read about the paralytic arising and walking and just kind of skirt right over that until you've been paralyzed. So when I was in the hospital, they put me on a severe paralytic. And when I, when I woke, my legs could barely function and my arms were immobile. I was completely paralyzed. To, to the point that it took a few weeks to just get the strength to stand out of the bed with my legs wobbling. To stand up for the first time and give Jessica a hug, tears running down her face. And then it took a couple more weeks to, to take a, a few steps to then sit back down into a chair. Again, my arm's not working. And a few more weeks to walk across the room with a walker. And then a couple more months to start walking on your own without the, the aid of a wheelchair. Right now, three months later, OT twice a week to just get my arms to work. To be paralyzed is a terrible thing. And what strikes me is that, like, the power of Jesus to cause a man who's fully paralyzed to have the strength, the motor skill, the mobility, the bravery to stand up. Right now, you push me over, I'm down. <laughs> I ain't getting up. You know, to get off the ground. Been trying to convince Jessica to let me go on walks on my own. She's like, absolutely not. I was like, 
If I'm not home in 30 minutes, you'll find me. I didn't go far, I promise. I fall over, it's impossible. To arise, the man's on a bed, and Jesus says, get up, dude. And the man immediately, instantly, all of the atrophy and his muscles completely reverse. I didn't realize this, but your tendons shrink when you're not using your arms or your legs. So that even if you do gain mobility, you don't have range of motion. It takes incredible stretching. And then there's the swelling that comes with the thing. To instantly get up and walk, that is radical. I've never been blind. Being healed of blindness sounds pretty incredible too. But I've experienced paralysis. And the power of Jesus in this moment is insane. And it, and it happens. Why? Because he's wanting to validate the bigger miracle. And that was the forgiveness of sin. The bigger miracle in the story is not the man who's paralyzed getting up and walking. The bigger miracle is Jesus forgiving the paralytic sin. Jesus forgiving the paralytic sin. How could Jesus forgive the paralytic sin? It's, it's, it's a profound question, actually, if you think about it. Now, you could say, well, Zach... Jesus is God. So Jesus, you know, sin is, is a crime against God, and as a result, God can forgive sin. Yes and no. I mean, we have an entire section of your Bible dedicated to the process, the necessities for forgiveness. You see, sin can't just be arbitrarily forgiven, even by God. Sin requires, because it's a crime, it requires restitution. It requires sacrifice. It requi there is a requirement as a baseline for forgiveness to happen. So yes, Jesus had the authority to forgive sin because he was God. That is true. But Jesus could only forgive the man's sin because Jesus knew he would die to pay for the man's sin. This man didn't know that at the time. And to me, this time as I, I've been plowing through the text, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on a limb and say that this man was very thankful that his sin had been forgiven. And he knew it had because he got up and walked. How he had been forgiven, I'm not sure he realized. Well, I, you, didn't, you didn't ask of anything of me, Jesus. I didn't have to make penance. I didn't have to make sacrifices. I didn't have to do anything for you to forgive my sin. In fact, it wasn't even my faith. It was the faith of my buddies. It wasn't the fact that I got here. I didn't. They carried me. I didn't come to you. I was carried to you. I didn't get down before you. I was thrown through a hole in a roof. It wasn't my faith. It was my friend's faith. And yet you looked at me and you said, son, your sins are forgiven. You didn't say go do this or go do that or make this sacrifices or that. You just looked at me in love and you said you're forgiven. And I've been wrestling ever since with how can you do that? 
And then the man saw Jesus hanging on a cross. And I think at that point, some clarity came. That was a cross meant for me. That's what my sin required to be forgiven. But you forgave me, meaning you're hanging there for me. That it's not about what I do. It's about what you're doing. It's not what I've done. It's what you've done. It's not about the sacrifice I've made or am making, but the one that you made. And then the man knew for sure his sins were forgiven. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And that was all the evidence the man needed. That when he died, it was not the end, but the beginning of a whole new life. The man's sin was forgiven. And what resulted? He rose up and he walked. Friends, when Jesus forgives your sin, that is the same result you too will arise and walk. And you're like, I don't know how that's possible because I'm paralyzed. I'm so stuck, Pastor Zach, you don't understand. I'd love to get up. I'd love to move forward. But I am stuck in this situation. I'm stuck in this sin. I'm stuck in this plot. I feel like I'm in mud. I can't move. How can I walk? Jesus forgives. And it's that forgiveness. It's the experience of that grace. It's a miracle. And it is radical. Well, I don't know how it works, to be very honest with you. But I can tell you this, that if Jesus says, arise and walk, you know what you'll do? You will arise and walk. Jesus said, God said, let vegetation come on the earth. And what happened? You think the trees were resisting coming out? No, it happened. God's word, we're told, never returns void. When Jesus says, arise, you will arise. And if he says, walk, you will walk. Now, I should say that the other part of the story that we can't avoid. And I find it to be such an encouraging thing. Is how it all begins. Like would this man, ex would he have experienced forgiveness? Would he, be, would he have experienced restoration? Would he have experienced healing? Would his life had been, would his life been transformed by Jesus if not for four friends that saw the solution to his need before he did. And I would say that the, the story illustrates no. It wasn't as though these four friends were like, hey, bud, you really need to go to Jesus. The man's paralyzed. That's great, fellas. How am I going to get there? Now, these guys saw his need, saw the remedy to his need, and were willing to do something to get their friend to Jesus. Now, what happens next? Well, that's on Jesus. <laughs> but they love their friend. They're, 
You got any friends that you might say are lame? I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but you know what I mean. They're lame. You're like, you, you really need to come to church with me. Yeah, I know. But they're paralyzed. They're frozen. They're stuck. You see, these guys were like, you need to come to Jesus. You know what? In fact, we're going to show up. Church starts at 1030. We'll be there at 10. And you can't fight me because I'm going to pick up your bed, put it in the back of the truck, and we're taking you. Like, you're coming. You don't realize you're lame, and Jesus can heal you, but I do. So you're coming. Like, I mean, these guys are bold. They're tenacious. But they love their friend, don't they? You're like, well, Zach, I, listen, I'm, I'm, and you fill in the name. I know they're lame. I know they're sick. I know they're broken. I know they're lost. I know they're stuck. I know they're paralyzed. I know Jesus can fix all of that. But you know what? I just really don't want to offend them. I don't want to put any pressure. Like, what is the loving thing to do? Let your friend go to hell? Or be bold enough to risk the relationship to say the truth? They say the statistics are profound. That even the most hardened atheist or resistor of God, 80% of the time will come to church if someone invites them. A personal invite. They'll often do it just to get you off their back. But they'll come. Now, that's where a lot of commentary on this passage kind of goes as an exhortation to bring your broken friends to church to encounter Jesus. And you know what? I, I think that that's a, a fair exhortation. Um, bring your friends. I'll tell them about Jesus. That's great. However, not the direction we're going to go. Because here's the deal. Jesus completely flipped the script on the mechanism by which people encounter God. You know, in the Old Testament, it was very clear, very specific, wasn't it? God picked out a people, the Hebrews. He told them to build a temple, tabernacle. He said he would, he would dwell in their midst. They would be his people. He would dwell in their midst. And as a result, they would be the nation, a beacon into the world. Anyone in the world could come and encounter God at a physical place, the temple. You wanted to encounter God? It wasn't climb up on a mountain, smoke some mushrooms, and have fun. It was come to a temple a location, chill out, and encounter God. God was there. His presence was there. That's where he could be found. That's how it worked. A temple. You had to come to some place, which is why I don't really like the exhortation of, hey, your friends need to encounter Jesus. Bring them to church. That's so Old Testament. Instead, the exhortation this morning is that Jesus flipped it. He said, instead of a physical location, a physical temple that I will dwell in so that people can come to it to encounter me, I'm going to fill the hearts of people that I will call living temples and I will send you into the world. It's not you come to a place and encounter Jesus. It's I'm going to fill you with Jesus so that people can encounter you and the world. That's the gospel. That is the Great Commission. It's not go ye into the world and bring people to church to get saved. It's go into the world and make disciples. 
Now, this time, Jesus was on the earth in a physical place. So they, they did the right thing. They brought him to Jesus. And, and, and if you're struggling with what to do, at a minimum, I'm with you. You can bring them here. I'll tell them about Jesus. But the greater exhortation within the context of the new covenant is that you are the temple of the living God. Jesus has filled you. And your lame friend needs Jesus. So you take him to him. Let that person encounter Jesus through you. They don't have to come to church to encounter Jesus. They should be encountering Jesus with every conversation they have with you. With every word that you speak. With every look that you give. They should experience the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus when you look and say, you can't arise and walk. I don't have the power, but Jesus does. You don't have to be stuck anymore. You can move. You don't have to be lame anymore. You can walk. You don't have to be condemned. You can be set free. So when the devil beats his condemnation drum, you can point to the cross of Jesus and say, uh-uh. Uh-uh. I know I am forgiven of my sin because Jesus was nailed to a tree that had my name on it. And he then rose victoriously. I'm forgiven because Jesus says I am and then did the work to make sure I was. This man knew he was forgiven for one reason. He could see the cross and then an empty tomb. And you can as well. Yes, at a minimum, we all have lame friends. Don't tell them they're lame. Not a good evangelistic strategy. But we do. Do you love them like these four men? Not to bring them to Jesus, but to bring Jesus to them. So, Father, we just let that exhortation...